the name that is above every name, the only name by which men can be saved. Um, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 8, at least part of Mark chapter 8. Uh, so you can turn there, going through the Gospel of Mark. Two weeks ago, uh, remember, we had a gentle and asked for deliverance of Yes, they had an exchange. What was their little change about? What else? Yeah, about bread, right? So, it, it, you know, Jesus says, hey, uh, the, the bread is given to And we, we talked about how, how offsetting that might be for some to think about that, you know, he's talking about the children as Israel, the, the dogs, these little, their pets as As, wow. <laughs> and then as uh, we, we are just reminded that God's mercy overflows to all people who seek it. That, it. that it overflows to you no matter where you've come from, no matter what your race is, no matter what your gender is, no matter what your heritage is, no matter your past. That if you're seeking out the mercy of God, it's available to you. Um, but what's this thing about bread? Why does it come up so often in the Bible? And in the Bible, bread typically symbolizes that, symbolizes that which sustains life. So, so we can kind of give it that simple definition. When, when we talk about bread, and you talk about bread in the ancient world, you're, you're pointing to that which sustains life. And, and then you, to, to go a step further with, with God, it's, it's the way God sustains our life. And the bread that is often referred to in that sense is this, this manna that sustained life for God's people when they had left Egypt, been delivered from slavery, find themselves in the middle of the desert, where what are we going to eat? How are we going to survive? God provides manna for them, which, which literally kind of means, what, what is this stuff? You know, what is this? Um, but he provided bread for them in the desert. Jesus, when he was tempted by Satan, um, pointed back to this provision. Because at one point, Satan says, hey, listen, you're really hungry, you're fasting. This is Randy's paraphrase. You're really hungry, you're fasting for 40 days. Hey, so what you need to do, see these stones right here. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread, that which sustains life. And Jesus actually quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, which in its context is talking about manna. And, and he says, man does not live by bread alone, right? But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So it's really interesting. He, he's, he's not going to do that because, and in the context of this, of this provision that sustains life, the pointing to is the God who sustains life. And it seems like here that we're, we're clued in that, that bread may be something that sustains this temporary physical existence, but there's more than this temporary physical existence. And, and we, we have to, you know, we have to be concerned with the fact that there's more than this temporary life. We're reminded this week how fleeting, again, this life is, right? How temporary it is. 
And, and we have to be concerned with, with what it is to obtain and sustain eternal life, spiritual life that only comes from God. Um, soon after, soon after uh, the feeding of the 5,000, as it's, as it's told in the Gospel of John, Jesus gives this discourse again, on this provision of manna. But it's really interesting because, again, he points out that ultimately manna was a temporary physical provision. And he says to them in John 6, 49, he says, your forefathers ate manna. Listen, manna was a miracle, right? Manna, Manna was miracle provision. He says, your forefathers ate manna, the what is it, the miracle provision, the heavenly bread in the desert, yet they did what? Yet they died. That's what Jesus says. Yet they died. There's more to life than the sustaining of the temporary physical existence, even when that sustaining is miraculous. And Jesus makes it really clear that that provision, even though it was needed at the time, there were, there were things to learn at the time, but it was a very real down-to-earth provision for them. That temporary provision pointed to the greater thing, pointed to the eternal provision. As Jesus says later, actually he says several times in John chapter 6, I am the living bread. I am the bread of life, the Lord says. I am God's provision for you. Not not just for temporary provision, forever provision. So we get into this uh, story that's going to sound really familiar in the beginning of John chapter 8. I mean, Mark chapter 8. I'm sorry, Mark chapter 8. He says, During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? This is going to sound like a familiar question. How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls. That's a different word than the feeding of the 5,000. It's a larger... Remember the basket that, that Paul was was let down in uh, that one story, Paul's let down to escape, that held a whole person. That's the word for this basket. These are like huge baskets. Seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present, and having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dal Manutha. <clears throat> so there's, there's this parallel event of the feeding of the 5,000. It's the feeding of the 4,000 or, or what, you know, and, and, and Matthew actually as well, the separate feeding of a large crowd. It, it could be that this happened more than two times, right? What we, have a, we have the stories that are recounted for what we need to know and what we, we're, how we're encouraged to believe in the Lord. But John said, hey, listen, if I told you all the stories that could be told, 
there wouldn't be enough books in the whole world to fill, fill up what Jesus did in those few years. Um, Matthew also tells us that, like the 5,000, it was 4,000 men plus women and children, so likely many thousands more. Um, apart from the numbers that are fed, apart from the basketfuls, the number of the basketfuls that were left over, uh, the, the, the story is very reminiscent of the feeding of the 5,000. But it varies enough to be um, very clearly a different story. Jesus may still be in the region of the Decapolis. We're not positive of this. But if he is, then there may be this picture of the feeding of the 5,000 being a primarily Jewish crowd. And if this is in the region of the Decapolis, this feeding, this feeding might be a primarily Gentile crowd, which would really, again, show the mercy overflowing of God to the Gentile people much more than just crumbs falling off the table, which is good for us. <laughs> What's really notable about this crowd is that they have spent three days with Jesus, and we don't know if they had no supply, very little supply. At very least, they're out now, and they're hungry, but their devotion has been to be with Jesus, regardless of their physical need. They're like, I might be hungry, but I'm with Jesus. So it's really impressive how devoted these folks are to this time with the Lord. It, it reminds you of Matthew 6, 5, where, where the, the Lord said in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness, for they we will be filled. Um, before we get into some of this, you know, spiritual implications here, let's not, let's not gloss over the fact that over and over again, we just see Jesus be compassionate. That Jesus just, is just compassionate for people, for broken people, for hurting people. Um, John Phillips, he's an author. I don't agree with a lot of that John Phillips says, but it doesn't matter because he's got some really good things to say too, and, and I think he's a, he's a godly man. And he, he said that the Lord did not divorce his teaching from his compassion. That's really important. The Lord did not divorce his teaching from his compassion. Um, you know, when Jesus healed, um, there were profound things to be learned. But he healed because he, he saw broken and disadvantaged people and he hurt for them. And when Jesus fed people, I, you know, again, there was a lot of good spiritual things to be learned there. But, but his motivating factor was that they were hungry. And he hurt for them. And I think as Christians, we can't divorce our Christianity, our teaching, our doctrine, our programs, our structures from compassion. Um, we can't, you know, Jesus didn't do these things, so he didn't use people just to make a spiritual point. He didn't do things just so his ministry would look successful. Oh, well, guess what? Okay, here's our tally, folks. We, we fed 4,000 people. Yay! If anything, you see Jesus do stuff quietly, and let me take you aside, and let me kind of on the down low. It's not about our ministry reflecting success. It's about real compassion. It's about really loving people 
in the places that they're really hurting right now. And we just can't, as John Phillips says, divorce that Christianity from that compassion. Uh, Jesus expresses his desire to his disciples for these folks to be fed. And, and I like, he actually, it actually seems that he cuts them off in the pass from responding somewhat like they did the first time. Because the first time they said, oh, Lord, it's getting late, so we need to send these people away. <laughs> right? So before they could even say that, Jesus is like, listen, these people are hungry. They've been three days. Um, you know, there's three days of hunger, three days of desperation, and they're going to be satisfied. There's probably some, something to be thinking about, some foreshadowing there. And he's like, but we can't send them away <laughs> because that would be uncharitable. That would be unwise. They might collapse. Um, they might collapse as they are on their way. And, and Jesus, Jesus cares for us in our hour of weakness, right? He, he cares for you when you feel like you're about to collapse. And, and some of you know that feeling. Some of you could even be experiencing that feeling. And he cares for you in that place, and he wants to, wants to sustain you in that place. Um, so he says, hey, we're not going to send him away. And he, but yet, how, how do we see the disciples respond this time? How do they respond? Much better than they did the first time? No, really, they respond very like they did the first time. Um, they, 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 they still can't see... Um, what they need to see. It's, it's, they still just see that their resources pale in comparison to the need. And Jesus again asks them, what do you have? And I think that's a, an important question. He asks them both times, okay, what do you have? What are your resources? And this time it's, it's seven loaves. Well, we got seven loaves, and people talk about the numbers and symbolism. If you have any questions, I can... We can tease out a little bit what some, some people might think about that. But they say, we've got seven loaves. They've got a few fish. Okay. All right. And you think that question, how many loaves do you have, would have started, you know, for them, like some bells should have been going off. I, I've been here before. Wait a minute, you know. And, and the Lord gives thanks. And it's, it, I always think it's beautiful. You see the Lord do this all the time. When they're about to give him, have a meal, he gives thanks. And, and, you know, a lot of you pray for your meals, and I, and I just pray that it's not, I hope that it's not just tradition and just not just religious rote, because I think what you see in this is just a, a, a God-oriented, step-by-step reliance and, and gratitude. Lord, I trust you. I rely on you. I'm grateful for this meal. Lord, I'm, I'm having dinner again. Wow. I'm, I trust you. I rely on you. I'm grateful. And you see the Lord do this beautifully every time. He gives thanks. And, and as he does this, he, um, the fish and the, and the bread again are multiplied. The, the, Jesus, Jesus is the supplier. The disciples are the distributors. That's the way ministry always should be. Jesus the supplier, his followers, just the distributors. And they are all richly satisfied. And there's leftovers. Again, God's not stingy. God's not stingy with his supply. He's super abundant. And, and it's almost easy to go like, oh, yeah, here we go again. <laughs> and you're like, this is incredible. 
This is incredible. Jesus, the provider. Jesus, the one who has compassion for each meal, for each hunger. And one of the things that I really marvel at in this story is, is his patience with his men. That he's willing to teach them again and again the same lessons. And you're like, I'm glad I'm not like that, right? But it's like we are like that, right? How often does God have to teach you the same lesson? Over and over. And how often when he teaches you that same lesson, you say, wow, now I've learned and I've learned more and I've learned more of him and I've learned more of his heart. And and I just want to encourage you, don't be discouraged when the Lord brings the same themes up over and over again. If anything, it's something that we should bring our attention to. Say, what do you you want to teach me this time? What am I missing? Where, Where do I have to go deeper? Uh, Verses 11 through 13, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply. We've seen him do this before and said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given it to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed on the other side. So now Jesus has traveled to a new shore we don't really know where the city is. It's the only time it's ever mentioned. Um, it, it's probably back on the western shore of Galilee, as some people connect the dots. And he's confronted again by some religious leaders who are demanding a sign from heaven. Why? That's a question for you. Why? Okay, to prove my fraud. Okay, they have to see it to believe it. Good. It's good. Yeah, Mark said, we have this word test. Does anybody have a different word than test in their translation? It, it could actually also be translated tempt. Um, so some people, you know, it, there's that, there's that feeling in there that it's, it's a test, but it, it's, it's kind of alluring. It's an it's a effort to tempt. Um, yeah, and in, in essence, the Pharisees are saying, you've got to verify things for us. You've got to show yourself to be true, that you're not a false prophet. And to do this, apparently, you have to do some celestial, amazing miracle above and beyond what you've already done. There's someone else who tried to do this. Who is that? What's that? Yeah, this is, this is exactly what Satan did. It's exactly what Satan did. We talked about this in, in, when we started, right? If, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you are the son of God, throw yourself from this cliff because surely the angels were, will catch you. And Jesus again sighs deeply, this time apparently grieved by their demand, And he responds to them basically the same way he did the devil. No. So these very influential, important guys, right, come in to say, show us a sign from heaven and show us that you 
the, the true authority from God. And, and he's just like, no, no, not going to do that. In fact, the, the wording in it is actually like an, he does it with an oath. It, it's this very, very strong wording. You will not get a sign. Why does he say no? Is it unreasonable what they're asking? <laughs> I mean, we don't know. He had come back on the other side. They certainly would have heard of signs. They certainly at times were there when he had performed miracles. Yeah, yeah, so it's really interesting. It, it, it's, I think you get this feeling that they want a Messiah that will prove themselves prove himself on their terms, and do their bidding. They, they, they want a Messiah that they can control and rule over. If you really are, do it now. We're the authority. Show us. And this one guy, Gilbert Bilazikian, said, they are determined to find a compliant superman who is endowed with heavenly powers but will fulfill their own earthly program. You ever guilty of that? <laughs> They're determined to find a compliant Superman who's endowed with heavenly powers and will fulfill their earthly program. And of course, they miss the heart of Jesus' ministry. David English says Jesus' ministry was not primarily about proving his claims about himself, it was primarily about embodying God's love for all he has made and gathering it into his kingdom. And then you think about how he does this, where his trajectory is. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 23 says, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That's the sign. Crucified and risen. Stumbling block for the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles. And we see this over and over again in the gospel, and I think it's, a, it's, it's an important theme to see. Um, we sometimes think, like, if, if someone could only see this, if someone can only see something spectacular, and, and, or if someone can just be convinced with the greatest of intellect, and, and the reality is, is that miracles alone do not lead to genuine faith. You see that over and over in the Bible. Miracles alone do not lead to genuine persevering faith. Nor does intellect alone Many of the crowds witnessed Jesus' miracles and some of the Pharisees witnessed Jesus' miracles and, and turned away. And really on closer inspection, Jesus performs miracles not, not, not to create faith where it's absent, but rather in response to a setting where faith is already the environment. And it's usually in the context of meeting a real need. He's not a circus show. He's not at our command. And Jesus' call is to faith. Ultimately, believe in me. Trust in me. And, and, and there's no faith needed in a miracle-on-demand God, is there? That's the opposite of faith. For the Christian, it's not so much that, that seeing is believing, but it's that believing, as, as it's been said, believing is seeing. 
Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do, do not see. And then we see Jesus move away from these guys quickly this time. And it seems like as much as Jesus is incredibly patient with the slow learners, that's, that's encouraging, right? Like the disciples are really slow learners. They don't yet have the spirit of God. As much as he is incredibly patient with the slow learners, with someone that refuses to learn and refuses to believe, you've, got, you've just got nowhere to go. All right, so this last section of verses, um, verses 14 through 21. The, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for the one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Um, Matthew says, and of the Sadducees, it could be here the Herodians. So a lot of them were Sadducees. But anyhow, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They, dis- they discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. <laughs> Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, why are, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not under- see or understand? And then we get this series of, of questions. He rattles them off. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do, do you have eyes but fail to see or ears but fail, fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five ba- Five loaves for the 5,000. How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? Verse 14 is really interesting. Let me reread it. He says, The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for the one loaf they had with them in the boat. What was the one loaf? Part of us were like, we don't, I don't know. But in verse 16, they're saying, it's because we have no bread. It could be that it's like, oh, we brought one loaf. But it very well may be, a lot of biblical scholars think that that Mark's kind of winking at us a little bit here. There was one loaf of bread with them, right? It was God's provision of Jesus in the boat with them. Um, and, and, and Jesus uses this theme of bread. He drives home a warning. He, he warns them about yeast. Yeast is something that in the Bible, it's something that's very small but impacts a lot. It's very small, but, but it's very pervasive and far-reaching. Yeast is usually used in a negative term, Occasionally, it's used in a positive term, but the idea is small, even so insignificant you overlook it, but it's very far-reaching, very pervasive. And he says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. Watch out for the yeast of Herod. Now, we know, so it's like, okay, Jesus, what's going on here? What are you talking about? And, and we know that the Pharisees had this mindset of hypocrisy. Outside is important, my, but my heart can be far from God. We know that Herod and the Herods in general were very worldly wise, but very godly foolish. They, they were concerned about the temporary, the pleasure, the power, but not very concerned about things of eternity. Um, but David Garland suggests that they, what they both had in common was their refusal to believe. They had eyes that wouldn't see, ears that wouldn't hear, minds that wouldn't perceive. 
and I think we have to watch out for that hard-hearted refusal to believe. Uh, certainly, if, if you've never turned your life over to Jesus, that's the greatest of concerns. And then even as you walk with the Lord, sometimes there's times that we just say, I'll go so far and no further in my faith. And, and, and it's, it's, that, it's in that place that we're the most limited and it's the most damaging and the most damning, that hard-hearted refusal to believe. He's like, watch out for that. You who are so slow to learn, my disciples, I'm going to keep work, working with you, but there's something that is just so pervasive that when it gets in the batch, it destroys the whole batch, and it's this, this, this refusal to have faith. And, and it just becomes either this, this hypocrisy of religion or it just becomes all be, all, being all about the here and now and the temporary and forgetting the eternal. But it all stems from the same thing. And the disciples are almost comically, um, almost comically can't get their heads out of the sand. They, they start looking at each other and they're like, it's because we forgot to bring bread. We forgot to bring bread. You forgot to bring bread. No, you forgot to bring bread. And, and they're just always like looking here, you know, they're right here. This is it. This is my world. It's just this. And it's interesting too, just to note, Jesus is going to bring some correction, but it, has not, it, it wasn't the correction that they thought they were going to receive. And, and I think a lot of times we, we carry loads of guilt and loads of shame and loads of worry about things that we shouldn't, and then we gloss over the very things that God cares the most about. About loving our neighbor and, and forgiving our brother and walking in intimacy with him and helping the outcast in his name. Donald English writes, if we ask, how can the disciples be so dense, we need immediately ask the same question of ourselves. Jesus is like, what are you guys talking about? Why are you talking about bread? You know, they have really short memories, and we have really short memories. God could have done something awesome last week, and then this week we're doing what? We're like wringing our hands. And and Jesus is like, all right, remember the 5,000 fed and the 12 basketfuls of abundance? Yes. Remember remember the 4,000 fed and the, and the seven basketfuls of abundance? Yes. Okay, so now you're worried about what the 13 of us are going to eat? Do you still not understand? What didn't they understand? What didn't they understand? Yeah, sure. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. I, I think their, their primary need, their primary need and they'd been missing it to this point, is to see Jesus. The Jesus that was with him, the Jesus that was for him, for who he really is. Don't you understand? Do, do you still not understand? 
You know, we're, we're just like the disciples, so worried about what we can see and so worried about what we can touch and so worried about what we can feel. And, oh, we forgot the bread. And, oh, Lord, give us our daily bread. Give us our manna. It's a good prayer, right? The Lord says, pray that. But when we pray that, we think about food and we think about clothes and we think about car repairs and we think about paying the bills and we think about stashing away a little bit for, for retirement. We're so preoccupied with the temporary physical provision. And the Lord is like, your forefathers ate manna in the desert, yet they died. This is temporary. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. And and Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, he's like, hey, listen, I know you're worried about clothes, and I know you're worried about food, and I know you're worried about what you're going to drink. Let me give you some counsel. Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Don't worry about the fleeting stuff. He's going to, you know, we need the whole counsel of God's word. You need to work hard. You need to apply yourself. You need all that. But listen, God's going to take care of you. Seek first his kingdom. Seek first his righteousness. Disciples are wringing their hands because they have no bread. And, and the one that's sitting with them in the boat, the one loaf is the bread of life. The giver and sustainer of eternal life. And our greatest need, just like the disciples, is to see Jesus as he really is. That's, just, that's always our need. Lord, I'm, I'm joyful. You need to see me for who I really am the provider of that good thing. Lord, I'm sad. You need to see me for who I really am, the one who wants to come alongside you in your brokenness. Lord, I'm in need. You need to see me for who I really am, the one who has great compassion and wants to sustain you. And he has the power to do it. Not just our worries of here and now and the next meal, but for eternity, forever. So, Lord God, we pray that we learn to trust you more and more as our ultimate provision, the living bread, the bread of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Helen.